I'm Christine. And I'm Alan. We'd like to thank you for tuning in to our discussion this week. Our hope is that we'll share some information that you will find helpful. So now we invite you to join us as we together listen listen for for the the word. Hi, everybody. Thanks for joining us today. Today, we are in Matthew 25, uh, the famous verses um, about the sheep and the goats, uh, verses, oh gosh, 31 through 36. 46. Uh, For me and verse numbers, that's always a challenge. No worries. (laughs) Hey, I want to talk today, uh, Alan. When you first come to these passages, the first thing that comes to mind without having that biblical background is that this is about judgment, that this is about works righteousness, those who are going to make it in, those who are not going to make it in. So maybe Alan can give some background on on this passage. Well, and that's an interesting perspective. You know, um, I think part of our problem is the lens through which we read the text. That's always a challenge for all of us. And so, for example, one of the things that I love about the Catholic Church is that they have what they call the corporal acts of mercy. And it mirrors this passage and actually adds a couple. They also have the spiritual acts of mercy. So they have, they have this list of like, you know, 12 or more, you know, things that are like, this is the way a Christian lives. And, you know, we, if anybody, anybody who studied the Catholic Church knows, they've had a long and strong, you know, history of emphasizing social justice, um, how well they, you know, how well they practice it, you know, in their daily lives. I don't know about that. Uh, but in that context, you know, this is something that they are obliged to do as a part of their Christian duty. Um, I have mixed feelings about that, to be honest with you, because I love the emphasis on living your life this way, Um, but having it be a sort of a a moral obligation or a sacred duty, I know that gets into some dangerous territory. Now, on the other hand, the evangelical crowd tend to focus almost exclusively their salvation on ultimate destiny. What happens to me when I die? That's all that I care about is what happens to me when I die. And that's overstating it. I mean, there are lots of evangelicals out there who care about trying to live the Christian life and being faithful disciples of Jesus. But in general, you know, and it's not just evangelicals. I mean, I think that's true in, in all, all uh, streams of the church. Um, there are a lot of people who their focus is simply on what happens to me when I die. And when that is your focus, then the whole aspect of living the Christian life gets skewed because it's all about, well, how do I get to heaven? What do I have to do to gain eternal life? Well, in the Bible, the point of salvation is not about where you're going to spend eternity. The point of the the point of salvation is about having a, living in a right relationship with God, and we live in a right relationship with God, as Paul says, solely based on grace, solely based on faith, solely based on God's gift of His love to us. That's it. That's the only way that we can live in a right relationship with God. But the Bible is filled with all kinds of passages that address this kind of thing that we find here in Matthew 25, that, the, you know, the, what, a, what a life lived in right relationship with God looks like mm-hmm. is, you know, 
uh, doing justly, loving mercy, and walking humbly with your God, to paraphrase right. the prophet Micah, you know, and that is found throughout the Bible. So I think it's important for us to sort of have a, I guess, uh, one of my, my favorite Reformed theologian, Jürgen Moltmann, calls the idea of salvation as uh, simply about where you spend eternity, a truncated soteriology. You know, in other words, you've, you've, you've made your doctrine of salvation way too small. You've cut out the, some of the biggest parts of it. And if you, if you look in the Bible, it has a holistic picture. Salvation is not just about eternal destiny. It's about how, how we live our lives right here and now. And so I think when you put it in that framework, then the whole concern with works righteousness kind of goes away. Right. So I think, I think the huge thing that c comes out of this is don't take it out of context. You have to consider the whole context it's placed in, which kind of leads me to have us look and then into this context based on the parables we looked at the last couple of weeks, those sure. um, ironic parables. Where does this fit? I don't see this parable as being quite so ironic. Um, I think this parable is in some respects, a little more straightforward. Now, however, I don't advocate reading this as if Jesus is giving a lecture on eschatology. You know, he's not teaching us, okay, the, this is literally what's going to happen in the end times. He's telling us a parable. It is a parable. It's a story that's meant to teach us a point. And the point is about what it means to live in right relationship with God is is to practice mercy in your life, basically. And and there were a lot of people in the religious context of Jesus' day and of our day, I think, who missed that point badly. <laughs> and so I I think that's important as we as we read the parable. You know, one of the things that troubles me is that um, the very people I think that Jesus was directing this parable toward, which was religious people who see themselves as in and who look down on the least of these in our society as out, um, they tend to look at this passage at these as a at a passage like this in order to justify their belief that other sinners, people whose sins are worse than mine, are going to wind up in hell since Jesus said so, right? Mm -hmm. And that's a totally, it blatantly misses the point of this passage. This passage is not teaching about hell. This passage is not teaching about eschatology. This passage is confronting, I think, the religious leaders mm -hmm. of Jesus' day and confronting us in our day, too, about um, the disconnect between um, what we profess and how we live. That often happens. Let me ask you, you know, I'm thinking, about, I've thought about Jesus' day. I thought about current day. What about Matthew's day? I mean, Matthew's the only one that really includes this. And so, right. and where he includes it, again, kind of pushing a little more on that placement. Well, you know, one of the, it's funny because, like I said, most of us, we tend to read this and we think the goats are these, these sinners out there who are living these immoral lives, although we don't include things like greed and abuse of power as immoral lives, which totally <laughs> escapes me. Um, but, um, you know, they, they, people tend to read this as, you know, the bad people out there, they're, they're the goats, you know, and people like me are the, are the sheep. And um, um, Jesus was confronting that 
religious self-righteousness that was rampant among mm-hmm. the Jewish leaders of his day. I think Matthew was probably using that as a part of his arsenal against the, the synagogue leaders who were uh, ostracizing and putting pressure on his uh, Jewish Christian community that he was addressing. As we've talked about, very likely uh, the Christ- Jewish Christian community that Matthew was addressing had either separated from the synagogue or were in the process of separating. And in that situation of conflict, um, Matthew is pushing back. But again, this is the rhetoric of the dispossessed because they've been sort of thrown out of their families and their lives because of their faith in Christ. Right, right. And as we'll see later, um, Calvin's going to read this as, 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 a, as a piece about hope. And so, you know, can we look at this as a piece of hope? Do you think this is implied now? We can, we'll talk more about that later, but. I, I, I'll be interested to hear what Calvin has to say about that. <laughs> I, I guess when I, when I read this, I read this in, in Matthew's context in line with all the other things that he, all the other interactions he's had with the Jewish religious leaders, uh, especially Matthew 23, confronting their hypocrisy. You know, they go mm-hmm. about making this big to-do about, making a show of being so pious. And, uh, you know, in fact, Jesus says in uh, Matthew um, 23, I believe, he says, yeah, you know, you, you, uh, you tithe even your cooking spices, but you neglect the, the weightier matters of the law, like justice and mercy and faithfulness, mm-hmm. you know. And uh, um, so, you know, I think that's part of what Jesus is ta- is about here. He's 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 castigating the Jewish religious leaders for their show of piety while omitting what was the heart of true piety, which is the practice of mercy in our daily lives. I think a space for this, I'm going to push you to go to a little bit more also as is what does this say about end times? I think people would jump into that and and start putting it into a kind of um, apocalyptic interpretation. Well, and that's very natural, I think, because, um, um, I mean, we're in that setting. Matthew 24 is Jesus' apocalyptic discourse about the coming of the Son of Man. The other two parables have had an end times setting. Um, I think, so here's something that I find interesting about this parable. When Jesus separates the sheep from the goats and tells them, you know, okay, you guys who are sheep, you enter, you know, inherit the kingdom prepared for you by my father because I was hungry and I was thirsty and I was a stranger and I was naked and I was in prison and you cared for me. And they're, they're shocked. They're surprised. And they're like, wait, when, when, did we, when did we do this, you know? And he said, whenever you did it to the least of these, you did it to me. Similarly, the goats, you know, he says, you know, depart from me, you work, you know, because I was hungry and thirsty and naked and a stranger and in prison and you didn't care for me. Oh, when did we see you and not care for you? To the extent that you didn't do it to the least of these, you didn't do it to me. They're both shocked. And that's where I get this idea that I think the point of this is to address the whole pretense of piety. So you've got a bunch of people who've lived their whole lives in sort of a the pretense of religion. And, and I think those of us who spend any time in religious circles know that there's plenty of pretension mm-hmm. in, in religion, right? And so, um, and that's always been true. And so, 
you know, you've got these people who are living in this sort of facade of, of righteousness, and Jesus calls them on it. He says, you know, you don't have the first thing down about it. You know, you, 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 you strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. You, you know, inside of the cup, you know, you, the outside of the cup, you make it all clean and pretty, and inside it's filthy, filthy dirty. You know, you've missed the point is what Jesus is saying. So if there's hope here, the hope is, I think there may be some pleasant surprises and some un- not so unpleasant surprises when it comes to judgment. Now, I, I don't think, theologically, I don't think judgment, I don't think Jesus is teaching here that our eternal destiny is based on what we do. Mm-hmm. I, I believe that our eternal destiny is based on God's grace alone. And so, but but we, I do believe, we'll all face a judgment. And I think some of us are going to be embarrassed at what we thought we did and we didn't really do. Mm-hmm. And there are going to be other people who maybe were on the margins of the church. Maybe they never really saw themselves as very religious. You know, you, you find some of the best people you meet in the world, some of the kindest mm-hmm. people you can meet in the world. They say, well, I'm... They sort of apologize. I'm not very religious. But when it comes to actually doing these things, they're mm-hmm. some of the best people. They're some of the best followers of Jesus mm-hmm. in the world because they're actually putting into practice what he's, what he's trying to get people to get. You know, to, to, This mm-hmm. is what it's about. It's about how you live your life. And it's not about any kind of pious show. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I would see that hope there. And, and you know, I've had people... Um, I've had I've had encounters with people like that. You know, they say, "Well, I'm not very religious," and I say, "Look, you may not go through the motions of the rituals, but you've got the essence down by the way you live your life." And I, again, I'm not advocating a works righteousness. I'm just trying to reassure them that in God's eyes, that's the important thing. That's what it means to live in a right relationship with God. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't advocate. Just doing that and, and, and ignoring the spiritual part of, of a relationship mm. with God by any means. But that, that's where I would see the hope in this passage. We were going to have to see what Calvin says. I think you'll find it really interesting. Cool. And, um, cool. Uh, maybe a challenge. Oh, okay, cool. <laughs> okay. Cool. Um, I think the main point for me in this passage is that. In the kingdom of God that Jesus proclaimed, what counts is mercy. Um, you know, when, when the religious leaders criticized him for hanging out with the wrong people, he quoted Hosea to them, you know, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And he tells them, go and learn what this means. <laughs> He's talking to the people who spent their whole lives studying Scripture, you know, and, and, and de- debating and discussing, uh, you know, at length. What, is this, what do the Scriptures mean? He, and he's basically saying to them, you've missed the point entirely. You've totally missed it. Uh, and he added, of course, in that passage, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners or outcasts. And, and this, is, this is another aspect of this passage that sometimes a lot of people don't get because there is a debate in New Testament circles about who are the least of these. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is a small group of New Testament scholars who believe that the least of these are the traveling um, preachers of the gospel who were dependent totally on the hospitality of Christians and um, um, each 
probably each segment of Christianity in that day, the Matthean community, Luke's community, Paul's community, you know, the various segments of, of, the, of the church had traveling teachers, traveling preachers. And, you know, there wasn't, there wasn't a Hampton Inn where people could check into in those days. The only, the only lodging for travelers in those days was a, was a tavern or a brothel. And, you know, if you're a Christ, traveling Christian preacher, you're not going to want to, you know, find accommodations there. So um, they were dependent upon Christian families for hospitality. I get that, and I see, I see that that may be a part of this, but I don't think that's all there I, is to it. I don't it. think so either. I think that mm-hmm. misses the whole point, mm-hmm. uh, the, you know, because, again, Jesus throughout, uh, throughout Matthew's gospel, Jesus has emphasized mercy toward the least, mercy toward the little ones, you know, mm-hmm. and that's not just in Matthew 18, it's not just the children, it's, it's, it's the people who are the least and the last and the left out. Yeah, yeah, and, and, and all those different pe- all those different people from all those different spaces. Right, yeah. right. And I so, agree, I don't think that's, I don't think that's a correct interpretation. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think it's overly narrow. I mean, mm-hmm. the, narrow, the, yeah. the Christian preachers may have been some of those least of these that he was talking about because they may have forsaken their livelihood and they may have been wandering about virtually homeless and and practically penniless you know themselves right but i don't think that exhausts who the least of these is i think the least of these is broader than that so yeah i to mean the whole point to me i think this this is a this is a parable that is meant you know in the face of judgment and i'm sure you know any of the pious jewish leaders who were listening to jesus teach were thinking i think jesus was anticipating them you know he's he's talking about the end times and they're thinking i don't have anything to worry about you know the bridegroom's going not going to shut the door on me uh, you know i've 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 taken my talents and i've i've produced plenty of plenty of uh, extra benefit from them you know i'm mm-hmm. going to be judged a good and faithful servant and because i'm i'm you know i've done all the right things i've checked off all the boxes and i think jesus tells this story to say now wait a minute mm-hmm. <laughs> don't be too hasty in your self-righteousness to pat yourself on the back mm-hmm. the real question is have you done mercy have you treated the least of these Right. With mercy. Right. That's the basis for judgment. And I think he's trying, he's sort of coming from, from the back door on some of these folks who are assuming, you know, oh, I don't have anything to worry about in the judgment. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you should probably take this a little more seriously because, um, I mean, let's face it, none of us perfectly lives up to this. And, um, you know, it's a it's a tough standard when you measure your life, your Christian discipleship by the standard of Matthew twenty five. It's a mm-hmm. tough standard. It is. It is. And you know, I've always said there are passages like this that create a tension for us, and we can't entirely resolve the tension because do you take in a homeless person in your home? Right. Especially if you have small children. Right. Right. Or other issues. Do you, you know, how far do you take this? And there, you know, it raises all kinds of questions that cause tension for us. I've often said, let the tension do its work because that tension is intentional. I think Jesus means for that tension to be there for us because it pulls us toward Mm -hmm. more faithful discipleship, in my opinion. I agree. Yep. All right. All right. Well, thanks, Christy. Thank you.
and I'm going to chat with uh, Christy a little bit about how the reformers approached this. So um, first of all, I'm just going to ask Christy to um, put this in the context of the reformers and how what would they what would they be thinking about when they approached a passage like this? Sure, and I think you have to go back and look at the medieval context prior to um, the reformers to understand kind of where this passage fit within this this process of, of Roman Catholicism um, and the sin cycle and salvation cycle. Um, and so we have to look, you know, if we look back at the idea of judgment and the sheep and the goats, it's clearly a sign of judgment. And they're looking at this world as uh, end times as being judged, whether you've made it in or whether you ha- are out of so the kingdom judgment of God. is clearly about eternal destiny. Exactly. Yeah. So this is a Luther that is obsessed with the idea that he's a goat, that he hasn't done mm-hmm. what he has to do to make it in, and he hasn't done these things well enough. So it becomes a call on what you're supposed to do to make your way into heaven. So the reformers who have now studied the Bible, studied the entirety of the Bible, are convinced by the salvation, by faith alone then they come to this passage and they start to look at this differently um, because they're understanding that broader context mm-hmm. of, of, the, of the faith. Now, I know, I know that you've done some work on, on medieval theology as it, as it prepared the way for the, reform, the reformers. Uh, tell me a little bit about those cathedrals that, uh, that uh, sure. uh, kind of reinforce this whole oh, sure. uh, judgment and heaven or hell thing. Sure. I sent Alan a picture of some of the triptychs on the uh, medieval cathedrals. And if you go across Europe, of course, really almost every cathedral has a portal where they've got Jesus the judge and He doesn't look particularly kind or approachable, judging, if you will, between those who are saved and those who are damned. And the the visions of this are really quite horrific. I mean, if you're one of the saved and you're just hoping, well, Jesus, have I done enough? Has Jesus saved me? Or... The, the images of the damned is, is, is horrible and the kinds of tortures that they um, bring about. And most of us, if we're not familiar with the visual imagery, which is what your average person would have seen day in, day out, many of us are familiar with the imagery as put forth by Dante Alighieri and um, mm-hmm. the Divine Comedy um, and, uh, of course, most of us are most, <laughs> most familiar with um, a paradise, or excuse me, with the with the um, purg- purgatory and with with the hell, um, and those nine rings of hell that he pre- presents, and all the different tortures and 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 um, visions of hell that he pr- provides, um, and it's this is part of that medieval that medieval mindset about the world, and it's amazing to me when I think about that. If every time you went to church, the door you went through had this just terrifying image of you know Jesus is a judge who has the power to bless you by giving you eternal life or cast you into these horrible torments that are visually depicted above the door you know that you're going mm-hmm. into church if you went to church on a Sunday and they read this passage it's it's I think they they would not be able to separate themselves from a sense of fear absolutely fear and you have to know there is death around you all the time in a way Mm. that we do not experience today 
you are at every moment. There is disease. There is loss of death in pregnancy all the time. There's infant mortality. There's all these things. Well, and when when you when grandma or grandpa passed away, they passed away at home, and you prepared the body yourself. Exactly. Right? It yeah. wasn't so sanitized as it is. In no, no, and 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 so death is very very real, and. Um, daily talked about and uh of of course then we start to even see plague and that is you know taking care of 50 percent to 70 percent of the entire population entire cities are are disappearing there's a real sense of god's wrath in 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 this and a real sense of an urgency of am i saved and is my loved one saved right um that we just don't live in that space today right and so wow. this is a period, this is a, you know. That has to color how, how they would hear this passage. Absolutely yeah. color how they, and how they, they heard about it. And, you know, even in the time of, mind you, one of their, um, um, Ulrich Zwingli, you know, he, he, he survived, but he was taking care of plague victims. I mean, these are people that are very much, um, very much aware of, of the real danger of, uh, of life and a very, very, quickness of it that, that we just don't get and so luther when he comes and he's very worried about his eternal salvation and he is uh, awakened with the idea wait it's 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 grace um my salvation is secured in in the life death and resurrection of jesus christ that is a whole different space and that is how they come to this passage um and so calvin in particular he's he says that this is this is a bit of hope. This is hope for disciples who are facing all of this mm. stuff around them. They're facing the persecution. They're facing death. They're they themselves are are the lowest of the low. And yet he said, "This is hope for you because this is how that kingdom of God works in love." And is I am one of the. Remember we talked about how Jesus puts himself as one of those. Mm-hmm. What you did to me. Yes, this is also then how you, as part of that that lowest, you you I, I share that with you, if you will. So I think um, that's Calvin's really emphasizing that aspect mm. of it, as opposed to the kind of death and damnation that we we think Calvin's going to mm-hmm. emphasize. It's I don't want to say it's not there; it is there in Calvin. I mean, there's just a sense of a reprobate probate that is you know not going to make it. Mm-hmm. Not going to be included, not mm-hmm. make it. That completely messes right. up the concept, right. but not going to be included. But he doesn't want people to be fearful about that. He's like, if you're called, if you are part of the Christian, this is part of your sanctification, and this is going to come with who you are as a saved, as someone who is saved. So he took this as a message of assurance. As a message of assurance. Wow. Absolutely. That's fascinating. Mm-hmm. Huh. Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, and yet, he still has this framework of some are in and some are out. Yeah, there's still this framework of some are in or some are out. And I think with Calvin's world is if you're in this discussion at all, you don't really have to worry that much uh, about it. Yeah. And I think that's the... But there's definitely a play, and, and, I, and you get this tension with, with Calvin all the time, is this, this tension between... Um, um, uh, a force for good and a force for evil. And I think our 
I think what we see in these early modern thinkers is still that they're not quite modern and they, they, they tend to place evil within some type of op- opposing force, mm-hmm. um, which I think in more modern thinkers, a lot, it's still there with some folks, but in a lot of people, it maybe the, the, the evil is coming from simply absence from God. That's not really mm-hmm. part of an early modern concept. They're mm-hmm. still thinking of there's an evil, separate evil force at, at work. Mm-hmm. Um, but those people that are in this space, I think he's like, if you're starting and asking these questions Mm. and you're pursuing this, you really probably don't have to be the one worrying. Well, that was probably very powerful in, in his day. You Mm -hmm. know, people probably were, were, I bet it, I would, I would imagine at first some people would have been scratching their heads and saying, wait, are we, can we really go there? But then eventually if it sunk in, you know, that would have probably been a great relief. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I think what's interesting compared to some of the things we talked about is, where Calvin placed, though, for example, these, well, so there's these specific um, Matthew, Matthew 25 initiatives, right, that, that, are, that are in here. And Calvin would say, one, um, while the Roman Catholic Church identified these as very specific things to do, he said, mm-hmm. I see this as more general. There may be other uh, things that you're doing. Yeah. Of course. Um, yeah, yeah. That, that are absolutely caring for others that mm-hmm. may not be defined here. He didn't want to feel so limiting, mm-hmm. um, which I think was interesting. And the other thing that Calvin does, and I think is worth a discussion maybe in, in later, is um, he said, look, these are things that you are doing it's if you will i think it's part of his sanctification process that mm-hmm. you were called and responding to god's word but in that response if we're going to rate it worship and faith and then these things oh, where really? i think we might interpret yeah. well if we just do these things and we're showing us t- ourselves to be good christians in what we do those other pieces that worship part that's not as important and calvin would have put mm-hmm. worship above actually mm-hmm. above it yeah um is what you actually read in the commentary. Worship, faith, these would have come out of that naturally. Well, and, you know, I think I think I would say, you know, it, it, I talked about, touched on this a little bit, you know, that the people who say, well, I'm not very religious, but they actually live out compassion and mercy in their lives. You know, I've used this as, a, as, a, as an assurance for them. But I think, you know, the whole point of this is having a right relationship with God. And how do you, how do you, how do you find that right relationship with God? How do you enter that right relationship with God? It's, a, it's based on faith, and, and I don't think it has to happen in a church worship service, but it, there needs to be some I've, kind of context where either Scripture or the church, you know, who, who conveys the message, right? right? Who conveys the gospel? Right, it, it right. comes either from Scripture or from the church or both, you know, and so uh, I, don't, I, I would agree. I wouldn't want to divorce um, just simply... A social justice campaign from the spiritual right. uh, foundation, right. which I think is a temptation, it. and I think you know we hear that quite a bit. Well, you know, I'm spiritual but not religious. I mm-hmm. think it kind of fits into that pattern, mm-hmm. and that gets you into trouble because I think then you become about defining what God means to you. And mm-hmm. one thing about Calvin is this very corporate idea that is embedded into here is this is the body of of sure. Christ. This is what the world looks like with the body of Christ. And if we're talking about end times, this really was a bit of that tension between the already and not yet Mm. um, part of the kingdom. So yes, we've brought in, if you will, 
um, by faith and grace, by faith, yeah. with, with Christ coming, we, we brought in the kingdom, which we've mm -hmm. talked about, but it's not fully realized yeah. till God comes or till Christ comes again. And that's, that's that tension. And so that, that we see here, um, um, so I guess the tension in Calvin is between salvation by faith and grace and then sanctification. That's an ongoing process. Yeah. Abs well, absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That sanctification. And that's always going to be imperfect, mm -hmm. always going to be imperfect mm -hmm. while we're in this space before everything is fully realized in the kingdom of God with Christ's sure, return. Sure. Um, and so that's kind of an interesting space. And we could tie that all then back into this, to Augustine, right? We can tell the, and, and really? Augustine's theology of the, of the two spheres of the city uh, of God and the city of man. And so anytime in the city of man, Christ can't be fully realized mm -hmm. until... Um, and until again ushering right. um, the fullness of the kingdom the fullness is, of the kingdom is realized absolutely but I kind of this week I kind of went somewhere else because I was, I was thinking about this in um, um, medieval thinkers and thinking about this in terms of end times and um, and and how end times are, are, are understood and interpreted um, and I I think that's an this this Augustinian push still kind of comes through with Calvin's view, but another piece that I I was kind of messing around with was an earlier medieval um, early medieval theologian um, Joachim of um, 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 oh gosh I forgot the name of the city I apologize my my brain stopped there but um, he uh, this early mystic who 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 like to talk about um, the end times in terms of the Trinity. And I only bring this up because I think it gets us into trouble a little bit when we think about this in that, in that kind of context. But on the other hand, I think it, he also Im influenced reformers to some extent. So he talks about um, the, the, the kingdom of God, period, Oh uh, yes, Fiore, Fiore, thank you. <laughs> Good old Google. It's a little, it's a little, um, it's an area right at the, at the on the boot of Italy, right, right, kicks, kicks Sicily. So I know exactly where it is, and yet here my brains decided it was not going to figure that out. But um, Joachim of Fiore, he uh, had these kind of three contexts of, which, of of how the end times fit into kind of this this broad overview of, of historicist if I've you seen will. The, I've mm -hmm. seen the, I've seen the graphic yeah yeah so that he's got this concept of a kingdom of God and then the kingdom of Christ and it's ultimately a kingdom of the Holy Spirit and I thought that was kind of an interesting because we know he influenced Luther to some extent and I thought in terms of this what does this mean then how does this context of uh, fit into it and because if we talk about you know there's this sense of of this is what the kingdom's going to look like later mm -hmm. and so i do think that's a piece and trying to put that together is um of course he goes even further and he tries to define it in terms of placing the revelation pieces into it which is also a little crazy but yeah. um <laughs> anyway as i said i i, I went there um trying to place all of this information that's floating around during the Reformation period and, and the rediscovery of these thinkers and trying to think of how does that fit with their context of their understanding of this particular passage. And um, I think um, one of the places that 
that it does go there is that there's this imperfection of of the world at this particular time that um that that this is a vision of um of how one acts as they are as they are in this kind of intermediate in intermediary space is how they act in Christ in this intermediary space but once fulfilled that that this sense of um that the sense of completion um will um I guess yeah if there's a, a an era of the Holy Spirit the sense of completion will will kind of take away the maybe the sense of um maybe that sense of tension that we saw before that was so important yeah so I think it's a, I think it's a it's an interesting space then for us to think about maybe how we fit into that. Sure. Yeah. Well, it, it reminds me of Paul's statement. You know, now we see through a glass darkly, but then we'll see face to face. Yes. Yeah. Uh, there you go. And and um, I, I've, I've I've often been fascinated that Joachim of Fiori, um had the kingdom of God first, and then the kingdom of Christ now, and then the final consummation would be the kingdom of the spirit. I've always, often been fascinated by that. Yeah, um, yeah. But um, because I think you could, I mean, if we have a, full, a full-fledged full Trinitarian theology, I mean, it's always the kingdom of God, Christ, and the spirit in every yeah, phase. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> he would split it apart. And I would say in you know, I would say in terms of kind of medieval thought, it's a little sticky. It's got yeah. just too much. It, it, you know, I think of, of kind of a, a nominalism or a pulling away and going mm. to a more simplified kind of theology, you know, instead of this very, very muddy stuff. Mm. And yet when, when you think about, well, there's, there's this bit of rediscovery and trying to, you know, trying to understand all these different theologies on top of each other and how they might impact. You know, I, I do think there is probably something, something there when you're talking about, wait, all of this is taking place instead of using this as kind of a, a check mark or for who's in and who's out, all of a sudden you have a sense of, wait a minute, this is an imperfect, um, this is talking about the imperfect vision of our world now, um, you know, and how it has to function now. This is the hope. And I think it kind of pulls in into this concept of Calvin's hope, if you well, will. Well, and I guess to, to, to play into Calvin's terminology of the sovereignty of God, we can trust that God in his sovereignty and in his grace is, is going to complete his work. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And, and so that, anyway, it kind of took me, took me there. Um, and then, you know, and I think we can talk next and we can move to it, but I had thought also jumped on you know your favorite guy Jürgen Moltmann and um, his theology of hope and I think that also fits well into maybe the theological context for this sure passage that's that's where that's where I encountered Joachim of Fiori by the way oh hey (laughs) exactly and I do I think it fits into that concept of hope but think about that in terms of a Roman Catholic tradition where Mm. the hope is again only based on what you do it, it takes completely away God's power. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, I think, I mean, I think a, 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 a truly spiritual Roman Catholic like Pope Francis might, might argue that point with Absolutely. you. But for the, for the average person in the pew, it becomes very mechanized, very automated, very, you know, very much a matter of going through the motions. And it can be, um, just like anybody, and just like any other tradition, right. really. And I don't yeah. want to, yeah, I don't want to um, box. I think if we talk with any, any devout Roman Catholic today, they would say, oh, well, my belief is, is central then to mm-hmm. the works that I do, just yes. like, I think there's going to be much more of a, a, an 
an agreement that comes into play here as opposed to this kind of diametric um, Roman Catholics do this, you know, it's all about works and gosh, yeah. the, the Lutherans it's, don't have to do anything. Right. No, no it's I think not both so simple. would agree yeah. that they're both required. And again, that's that imperfect space that mm -hmm. we're in is still this very right. human space we're in. Um, we don't, we don't do it. We don't do discipleship that much better than the Roman Catholics. No, do. <laughs> no, no. And in fact, as you know, there've been many initiatives to, um, find spaces of agreement on those and, and, sure. And, um, and indeed, I think we've, we've come there. So we don't want to go there. But at least in this era, when they're really trying to delineate the theology of the time and, and they're, they're in a space when it seems to be so works and heavy that this becomes really, really important, this, this, this concepts sure. of hope that are, yeah, that are moving into it. Um, and I don't think a lot of us associate Calvin with hope. with hope, right? And that's really what that's I'm trying to push surprise. home <laughs> these last few weeks is is that Calvin is a much more positive mm -hmm. influence than what he becomes associated with later sure, on. Sure. And um, I just that's a really important piece of why this theology was so it was so uh, affirming and why mm -hmm. it was so compelling mm -hmm. for people to be to get on board sure. with. He obviously gained quite a following. He Absolutely. When people came to Geneva, when people came to Strasbourg and they heard this affirming and well thought out theology, they were, they, they said, yes, this is, I get it. This is it. Yeah. That's awesome. Thanks, Christy. You're welcome. Well, we're back, and uh, I want to thank both you guys for bearing with us. Both Christy and I have kind of nerded out on some of our uh, some of our um, um, interest in the nuts and bolts of some of this stuff. So, thanks for staying with us. Um, so, Christy, how do you see this passage playing itself out in our lives in our in our situation well, today? Obviously, this has become the big call of the PCUSA. So for this PCUSA pastors out there, they know there's a big call to become a Matthew 25 church. And and what does that look like? It does Can we or should we just take these items and and commit ourselves to doing these? Or is this a is this a bigger question than that? What do you think? Well, I think it's a bigger question than that, you know, and and of course, it's 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 a starting point to say, oh, well, gosh, you know, I was in jail. So you want to maybe start a jail ministry. You want to start giving food to people that are hungry and water. But that's, that tends to be something that we do. And we don't want to make sure, oh, we pat ourselves on the back because we've hit all these benchmarks and therefore we're done. But rather to think about this, you know, I think of this as a much more cyclical kinds of thing and that we have to constantly be in dialogue with what the needs are, what the call mm, is. We're not yeah. done. I think we want to be done as mm -hmm. Christians. We want to we, we want to be able to check off the boxes. Check off the boxes. I've done all these things. This is my to do. This is my spiritual to do list. And I've checked done. it off. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. And people like a simple religion like that. They mm -hmm. some people want those little things and and. Sorry, it's not that easy. No. I and agree. when we really look at the at the systems, you know, like we're talking about systemic racism and systemic poverty and, and our denomination in this as well. They're looking for what are the root causes. And the root causes 
I think we both agree are ultimately sin. Right. So it's constantly in dialogue with sin, our sinful nature, our mm. our forgiveness, and in that dialogue with uh, salvation, right. the salvation through the through grace, and um, then how as saved people um, we respond to that grace. Sure. So that's how I that's how I interpret it. Well, and I, I like I like your interpretation. I you know I would I would pull in from Calvin here and say you know, and it's not just these boxes that Jesus lists. You know, the least of these in our society may be somewhere even off this list. I mean, this list is not meant to be exhaustive of the things that this is. If you do these things, you've exhausted mercy. Now, one of the reasons why I like the corporal acts of mercy in in, in Catholic churches, at least it reminds people, hey, start with this, do this. Right. right? It does give you a place to look, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah. 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 It, it begins to open your eyes a little bit. But if we're really going to be, I mean, for, for me, I think what Jesus is saying is, is set aside your self-interest, yeah. your, your obsession with yourself, your own needs and wants and fears. We all have them. Mm-hmm. Set that aside. Die to yourself, right, he says. Right. And and adopt a a life attitude of mercy mm-hmm. toward all that you encounter. And so some of them may be hungry. Some of them may be strangers. Some of them may be imprisoned. Some of them may be sick. Some of them may be outcasts and the least of these and the last and the left out in our society mm-hmm. for other reasons than that altogether. Right, right. And, you know, this is my point of frustration on this at this point is because, you know, there are certain of these tasks, I guess, certain of these practices that have become uh, acceptable. Yeah, you know, that's right. Stocking that's the food right. pantry, engaging in a prison ministry, hospital visitation, those are, you know, those are standard fare and we we right. everybody's comfortable with that. Right. But you know, who's the stranger in right. our society? Well, they're the immigrants. The immigrants. Absolutely. And, you know, I've told people, I've I've dialogued with people about this. My views on this, I have my own political views on this, but but for me, this is a spiritual and theological issue, first and foremost. You know, mm-hmm. Jesus says, I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. Right, right. And so I don't know what immigration policy has to look like or is supposed to look like in this country, but our basic attitude toward everybody has to be mercy. Yeah, absolutely. Because that's what Jesus absolutely. is advocating here. So, you know, it's it's not just these certain well-defined boxes that everybody's comfortable with that we can check off. You know, our church does does the food pantry. Our church does hospital visitation. Our church right. shut, visits shut-ins. Our church visits... But, you know, but Alan, look, ministry. how often... Okay, so how often do you go to the... Uh, the the soup kitchen right and you serve right and you're doing one of those boxes and how often are there the people behind the behind the counter and the people who are getting the food in front of the counter how often do the ones behind the counter go out and actually actually interact interact with those who are in front of the counter and to me that's a real problem that's a i've checked off i've done my good deed Mm -hmm. But have you really I, incorporated I that welcoming to, as spirit? As long as I don't have to really interact exactly. with people. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. As long <laughs> as I don't have to interact with people. And it's in those interactions. 
where you see the face of Christ. And it's in those relationships that you start to build and in that common humanity. Mm -hmm. And that's where people start to feel the value. And that's where we start to get rid of things like systemic racism, when we start to build real relationships and not do patchwork, um, kind of, kind of the things I think like right at the beginning of this, talking about these righteous people who are doing all these things that aren't getting it. Yeah. They're missing the point. They're missing the point. I, I, you know, and I would say from my perspective, I think what keeps us from that lifestyle of mercy uh, is fear. I agree. I'm a big fan of Henry Nouwen's, and uh, Nouwen addresses a lot of this, and in his writings, you know, about about how we have to get over ourselves, and we have to really open our lives to the mm-hmm. people around us in order to put these kinds of things into practice. Um, you know, I think. I mean, I I think back. I think back to the HIV crisis when it first started. Oh, I remember. Big time of course, yeah, 80s. yeah, yeah. There was this real. I mean, there was this angst. There was absolutely in churches. Do we let an HIV positive mm-hmm. child come to our church? Because there was this fear that maybe if the child bit another child or something like this, it would, it would, it would, you know, that, that they would, they would be contagious. And I think there's always been that sort of underlying fear among good upstanding church people that sinners are somehow contagious. You know, I've experienced that myself as a divorced Mm-hmm. man going to a church and and going to a single parents class mm-hmm. and picking up my children in the children's wing with all the parents who are together and the looks that they give it's like we don't want to get too close to you because you're one of those one of those divorced people and if we get too close your sin might rub off on us mm-hmm. i realize to some extent that's probably overstating it but i really think there's a reality out there that those of us who have safe comfortable lives we that that's something that we value above oh, almost everything else right and we don't want to do anything to put that at, at risk and so we hold on to our lives we don't die to ourselves we hold on to our lives we you know instead of losing our lives we try to t- right. hold on to them and um um i think it's a matter of fear i think we're afraid to get out from behind the serving line and actually interact. I agree. Because you know you're going to yeah. find people in that group that are suffering from mental illness yep. and you're going to be pushed yep. to a place where you're going to say, "I don't really know how to help you and I'm sorry." Right. And 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 that feels uncomfortable to us. And exactly. So, so yeah, we check off our box and we do our righteous right. thing. And we're missing the point. But I'm hoping, I think Jesus you know, would say, like we talked about, it's in this tension. It's this constant tension. And I think it's in that tension. And if nothing else, this passage should get us to live in that tension a little bit. Mm-hmm. And that's the tension that's going to help us be part of solutions, real solutions. I really do think that's, mm-hmm. I really do think that's the point of this passage, I is think. to introduce that kind of tension that pulls mm-hmm. us exactly to, to continually seek ways to deepen the life of, really practicing a life of mercy as as the way of discipleship i think so and i think i think if we preach that to our congregation i think that's pretty exciting yeah Yeah. i do too i mean i'm 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 sad that you know some of these issues have become so politicized in our current culture because that seems to make it even harder to to talk about it in church 
But um, again, for me, at the end of the day, it's not a political issue. It is a spiritual issue. Jesus wasn't talking about Democrats versus Republicans. Jesus was talking about the kingdom of God. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. And the almost is right here. Right. You know, almost, but not yet. Yeah. yeah. We already have the, 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 the blessing of the kingdom, living in right relationship with God, knowing Christ, knowing the grace and mercy of God in our own lives. We haven't yet reached the fullness of the kingdom of God where God's mercy defines all of what we live. And we're, but we, we, need to be, we need to be moving toward that constantly, I think. Yeah, yeah. I agree. One of the things I shared with you uh, in our break was... Um, um, there's a there's a famous Latin phrase ubi Christus ubi is it let me get it right ubi Christus ibi ecclesia, so it's um, where Christ is there the church is and it was used for centuries to basically say that where the church is that's where Christ is that's what it really means and there is no Christ outside the church, but as I mentioned before my favorite theologian Jürgen Moltmann um, deals with this to say. Hey, Christ says he's among the least. If you did it to the least of these, you did it to me. And so Christ is saying he's among the least. And Mm -hmm. so if we're going to really put that into practice, where Christ is, that's where the church is. He says this is a call to us. We're called to go and be among the least. Uh, he, he calls this, a, he even calls the people who, who fall into this, who fit into this category of the least of these as, as uh, a latent church, so to speak. So, uh, you, you know, he, I think he would, I think he'd be agreeing with us if he were here. I think today. so too. I think so too. And, and, and I find it interesting that I went to the same theologian for this passage too, you know, and, and thinking about that theology of hope is that, yeah, it's the, is the kind of the crux yeah. too, you know, well, that, what that hope lies in. And I, I mean, is. I think really, and that's, that's where our Christian lives fall down. We have the hope, we have the, the, the assurance of God's grace. We have the hope of the promises that, that have been made to us. And yet we also live in that space where we haven't yet, we haven't yet reached the fullness of the image of Christ ourselves. And we're always striving for that. Right. And so the, whatever we can do to, to reach that is always good, I think. Yeah, yeah. Sounds good. Thank All right. you. Thanks, Christy. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That's our podcast for today. If you heard something that was helpful to you, please subscribe to our podcast and tell your friends about us. It's our hope and prayer that our time together might bear fruit in your ministry as you build up the body of Christ. We hope you'll tune in next week. And in the meantime, let's keep serving each other as we together listen listen for for the the word. word.